Born in London and spending formative years in Kenya, Diana Simmons has had a lifelong affair with words. Words spoken and on the page as a writer, playwright, editor and critic. She has been cited as one of the most reliable and discerning theatre critics in Sydney. Her online blog stagenoise.com has amassed a large and loyal following of readers, punters and practitioners. She is immensely knowledgeable and entertaining with her observations and appreciation of many art forms. Hers is an essential voice in Sydney's cultural life. In London, she wrote for various publications, including Time Out and City Limits. Upon arrival in Sydney in 1985, she wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Bulletin, The Australian and The Sunday Telegraph, where she was the arts editor. Her nurturing of a thriving theatre scene led her to be a founding critic and adjudicator of the Sydney Theatre Awards, an annual celebration that has earned respect and legitimacy. She has published a number of novels and non-fiction books, including one on Princess Diana and another on Doris Day. And she's had two stage shows produced. Diana Simmons joined stages to reflect on the responsibility of the reviewer, the power of the arts and the essential need for us to tell stories. Well, you see, I got I got caught up in thinking of the romance of it with the, the best exotic marigold hotel, if you remember. All right. <laughs> oh, yes, that would be wonderful. But of course it won't be because Judy Dench won't be there and it'll just be horrible. <laughs> yes. Apparently there's a, there are a few hotels to choose from in India. I thought, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Diana, thanks for, for, for having this time with stages today, a bit of a conversation. That's oh, a great pleasure. I don't want to start on a downer, but I think we need to chat briefly about the, the crisis that's engulfing the industry at present. You were obviously working on a series of projects and yourself. Um, how do you think we're going to come out of this now that everything's sort of been postponed, suspended or cancelled? Well, I th- look, it's, it's, there's, noth- there's nothing in our collective life experiences, anything like it. It is utterly horrific. And that's largely because we don't exist. The arts don't exist in the eyes of this government. And that's, I mean, not, not only is that practically a terrible thing, because, because artists are in the main left out of the money pot, but I think it's possibly the most depressing thing that has happened for artists in this whole business. Because you suddenly i mean everybody knows that the government doesn't give a shit about artists but now we really know and that's that's desperately uh depressing i think and i i would think a lot of people have taken that as a as a real blow to the guts more than anything else and we find everybody is turning to the arts for their amusement and and entertainment while they're in Uh in lockdown um, and, and other than just entertainment, there's a therapeutic value uh, that everybody has for well-being and mental health. Well, I just wonder. I mean, the, the government at the moment, the federal government and the state governments, are all putting out their ads telling us to do this, do that, be happy, be whatever. Who do they think are making these things? Yeah. You know, who are the voiceovers? Who are the actors? Who are the scriptwriters? Who are the camera people, the lighting people who are actually making their ads? And what do they do when they go home in the evening? You know, do they do nothing? Do they stare at a wall? Do they watch old, old football matches? Or do they turn on the TV or read a book or a magazine? You know, it's, it's just absurd that they don't actually connect the arts, which is obviously a highfalutin, wanky place, with the things we all do every day. Oh, essential start. to our existence absolutely absolutely we we are not we are not a civilization without without the arts why am i telling you this you know that but we <laughs> there is no civilization without the arts it doesn't it doesn't exist so with every theater in town closed uh i guess it's effectively put a halt to your uh, nocturnal habits <laughs> yes it's very peculiar actually um, uh, you know, the, the, um, my bedtime sort of comes around far quicker. And as everybody uh, that I know has been saying, you know, the, the time to open a bottle of something, I mean, in my case, I'd, I'd actually stop drinking because I just didn't feel like it anymore. Well, I'm afraid now I don't feel like a drink because I just think at the end of a 
long day full of incredible numbers of appointments to do absolutely nothing, um, I want a vodka and tonic. So, but as for going out in the evening, uh, I mean, this today, having this appointment with you is just so exciting because I had, <laughs> I had something in the diary. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me as well, for me as well. Many of our listeners would know you as the, the creator, uh, the convener and the chief contributor to Stage Noise, which is an online um, arts uh, appraisal yes. forum. When did you start that? Currently asleep. Um, look, oh God, I've, uh, about 11 years ago, I think. Um, I mean, but I've, I've been a contributor, a participant, an observer of, of, of artists, of arts, of the arts, theatre mainly, for a hell of a long time. So, so I mean, I spent, I spent 12 years in, in, uh, in England and that's where it started for me uh, because I actually come from Kenya where, where there were no formal arts as such, but although we did have a very good amateur theatre club in Mombasa, um, and I did once play an ingenue and realised that I was utterly hopeless. So that was that. Uh, but, but I started in, in London on Time Out. And then when I came to Australia for three months in 1985, I just carried on from there. So, so uh, then it was very obvious that the mainstream press was going nowhere with the arts for space. You know, I, was, uh, I was first on the bulletin, then... Uh, I worked a little bit for the Australian and then the Sunday Telegraph and the space was being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. So I started Stage Noise right. and that's how it's been ever since. Which a lot of uh, critics or review. Do you prefer the term critic or reviewer? Critic sounds very critical. Right. Um, funnily enough. And <laughs> reviewer sounds a bit wanky. Um Arts journalist. Yes, commentator, commentator. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, good point. I comment on what's going on. So we see a lot of a lot of commentators who were perhaps pushed out of that um, the printed press, uh, moving to online, so that they had the space to really elaborate on on what they felt without the sort of the, the knife of the editor. Well, there was that to it, of course. I mean, when you are watching a piece of theatre that has taken years to get to that point. You know, the, the playwright, let's not forget the playwright, I've just written the play. Um, there's, you, you have the playwright, then you have the whole business of actually getting it onto a stage, getting the cast together, getting it through the rehearsal process. And then you're, you watch it and then you're going to say something about it in two, 200 words, 250 words, you know, it's, it's absurd. And then you, you look at the number of pages devoted to the sports in the, at the back of the paper. I'd really rather not, if you don't mind. <laughs> I mean, what are they finding to say about football at the moment, or racing for that matter? Really? Yeah. Now, many, many practitioners, directors, actors, designers, claim to not read reviews. Do you believe them? I know some don't. And, uh, I mean, when, whenever I've been in the position to talk to young young actors in particular my my view is you it's i don't think it's terribly useful to read reviews i mean i i realized that when i was when i had my first book published which was an awfully long time ago the good reviews puffed me up and the bad reviews deflated me either way they weren't very helpful you know and and i just think if if you take them seriously, then you've got to take the, the bad with the good. But really and truly, I, I don't really think that most reviews are really worth the, the pixels they're created from. So, I mean, I, I, read them when they can't hurt you, either, either good or bad, you know, but don't, don't read them at the time. Whose, opinion, really do, whose opinion do you Sorry. value? Um... Whose opinion? Um, mine. And uh, let me think. Um, I, I actually find 
I, I like I like good writing, whatever it is, you know, wherever it appears. So I'm always looking for good writing. And so I tend to look at New York Times a lot. And um, otherwise, I really, I admired Ben Noyce when, and I know that's not how you pronounce his name, I should know how to, but anyway, Ben. His, his opera reviews are really good. And uh, I, I also think that, uh, in, that's what we're talking about in Sydney. And um, I, th I think uh, Harriet Cunningham is also really good. As as is Cassie Tung, and out of out of the younger reviewers, um, I think Cassie's terrific. And other than that, I think I think people are constrained by their circumstances. Um, and and I'm I have to say I'm a snob when it comes to to good writing. I love a good sentence. I love good writing and I like people who analyze and think about things. I don't want to know just the plot, you know, it's, I, I can read a program for that. I want to know what they think and how they feel about it. And also their experience of what gets them to that place. You know, why are they telling me this? And from, from what, what's the context? You know, we are here, but how do we get there? Words are obviously pretty important to, to you in the various roles that you um, fill as, as a reviewer or a, a commentator, um, as a playwright, as a novelist. Um, reading, was that was pretty big, I guess, when you were a girl. Well, I was brought up in the bush in Kenya. Um, and when I say the bush, I mean, I mean the bush. Um, we, we, and we had... We had uh, no electricity, no radio, no, no TV. And it was during the dry season, it was a three-day drive to the nearest shop or settlement. And in the wet season, it was five days or not at all. So we were very much um, our own entertainment. And, and we also, I, I found very quickly that my dad was, was a policeman. He was a civil servant. And so we were posted to these remote, remote places. And who'd ever been there before uh, had left piles of reading matter because there was nothing else. So I didn't go to school. But what I, my, my dad always bought me books when I was little. He bought me, I, I had, and he always inscribed my name in them. So I had hundreds of books my own. But we also, in most of our houses, I collected uh, time and life magazines. So my geography and politics and reading came from that. And then there were these literary magazines and there was Argosy, which was full of stories and Blackwood's literary magazine. And also the early editions of Men Only, um, they had a centre section of very nubile young women <laughs> um, in black and white photographs which I found fascinating and, uh, and lots of wonderful cartoons, but fantastic writing. I mean, like Playboy, I read men only for the writing. So that was my education. <laughs> tell, tell me about the beehive school in Nanyuki. Ah, well, Nanyuki is my mum's hometown and we were posted there at some point and, and my grandmother's farm wasn't very far away up on the king up. And I, she thought I needed to go to school because I'd been running wild, you know, and becoming even more a heathen than I sort of grew up to be. So the Beehive School, it was actually called the Beehive School because it was, um, the school was actually a whole bunch of grass-roofed, grass-thatched huts, round huts. So they looked like beehives. Um, wow. So it was called Beehive School. And in 2013, I actually went back and it's now quite a quite a serious school, and I was I was welcomed back as a former pupil, which was really fantastic. All these little kids running around, wanting to to uh, hold my hand, you know, and practice their English. It was just brilliant. But but I'm afraid the beehives have gone. There was a, a, a significant event in catechism class, I believe. Oh yes, God! How do you know about that? <laughs> well, that was that was at Loretto. I I also spent uh, eighteen months at Loretto when I was a teenager, um, because again, my mother 
was was it was this losing battle of turning me into a young lady and so uh we were living in mombasa i went to loretto i was well dragged kicking and screaming to loretto and we we had to have we had catechism classes every morning um 7 30 to 8 and what you had to do was read read something from the bible that had been assigned to you by by whichever nun was looking after you on that particular morning and then you had to write it out in your exercise book which i thought was a really really dumb thing to do and incredibly boring so i started writing a um, very torrid romance a sort of days of our lives except i'd never heard of days of our lives and uh, it really concerns me and my best friend who used to uh, she and I would would uh, spend our weekends e exploring our sexuality together. But in order to make it okay, because of course neither of us were lesbians, um, I mean, we were only 12, let's face it, and uh, we didn't know much about sex apart from the fact that certain things felt good. So I turned it into a story so that we could justify practicing the story. <laughs> and, um, and so... I wrote, I wrote it, I wrote it out in, in, during catechism, but my, my big sin and the thing that, that really brought me undone was that I rented it out to the other girls at 10 cents a chapter. Um, and I made a fair bit of money actually, but I got found out. So I was expelled for oh. subverting the other girls. And you've that never looked it. back. That was the, well, then I got, then I, uh, when I finally went to England, I actually got paid for writing the Dear Forum letters in Forum, which was, you know, I am a sex-starved housewife from Hounslow. And, uh, and what should I do about my next door neighbor who's got rippling muscles, you know, that sort of thing. So, whoops, sorry, I didn't drop it. Um, so I actually got paid for doing what I was expelled for in the end. <laughs> Because there, there was a quite a career of, of that sort of writing. I had a friend who wrote for a, a, a paper in Melbourne called The Truth. Oh, God, where, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, where, where people would uh, apparently write in about their um, dalliance with the postman or, or a tradie. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I did. Um, and and I was, when I was doing that, I was about, what, 22 or 3. So I did have a great deal of experience, but I had a vivid imagination. <laughs> and uh, and I'd, I'd watched a fair amount of porn by then too. So, so you know, those, those, the letters in forum were, were actually fantastic um, real training for being a novelist or indeed writing a lurid, um, lurid soapy, actually. What was the artistic exposure like at school? Were you, I guess you were studying Shakespeare, were you? Were there school drama and music? Yeah, really bad. Really oh. bad Shakespeare. I mean, really excruciating Shakespeare. My main, my main memory uh, of, of the arts was my mother having a, a Namajira print of the ghost gums. And I... I cannot imagine looking back where she got it from, but she loved it. She absolutely loved it. It went everywhere with us from house to house to house to house. And she said that one day we would go to Australia. And sadly she died very young, so she never did, but I did. And then when I finally actually got to Hermansburg and saw the, the ghost gums and saw the Namajira landscape, I thought, oh my God, you know, that wasn't a, a fanciful painting. It was. It was life. It was real life. Wow. So that was my one piece of art. And then the United States Information Service, uh, which was, I think, a CIA front, used to send cultural visitors all around Africa, and um, which was a great thing, actually. But, but they sent Louis Armstrong once with, with his entire band, and uh, so I got to sit on his knee when I was very little. My dad was looking after him. And I sat on his knee as he, as he sat at the piano. And Velma Middleton, who was the, the vocalist with the band, sang. You know, it was, and I was this little skinny, knock-kneed 10-year-old. Um, but, but they also sent the, the Alvin Ailey Dance Theatre. Wow. Uh, wow. And I remember sitting in the dust uh, 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 in front of a, 
of a, of a big open tent where, where they performed in the middle of nowhere. And these incredible ballet, well, they weren't ballet dancers. You know, I'd only ever seen tribal dancing at that point, which is, you know, pretty amazing, pretty wonderful. Um, and Judith Jamison was the, was the lead dancer. And I just was so blown away by what I realized was art. I knew it was art. And I just was, that was it for me. I wanted, and I was already a crazy mad reader. So when I went to England, I finally went to England. um, Almost the first thing I did was go to the old Vic and uh, uh, spend of whatever pennies I had on a really cheap ticket to go and see Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And at that point, I was like 17, 18. I had no idea who Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were. I had no idea what the play was about, but I just, I just ate it up like this new food, you know, that was so delicious and I didn't understand the flavors or anything, but I knew I had to eat it and I wanted to eat it. And, and that was that. Well, also that wonderful exposure of Tom Stoppard and his sort of majesty with words and. I know, exactly, exactly. And and it was years before I actually worked out what it was all about, but, (laughs) but it was the, it was the words. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in hospital when I was a kid, I had all sorts of dreadful diseases and, tropical things and and oh enlarged liver polio you name it I had all these things so I spent months and months and months in hospital and when I wasn't making airfix models of airplanes you can ask me anything about world war ii airplanes I can tell you I was reading all these weird books and I one of them I remember is uh, I had a whole set of of paperbacks of of Gogol and, and I read Gogol when I was eight or nine. And again, I didn't understand the words, but it was like eating this rich, rich, amazing stuff. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop. More, more, more. Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea what it was all about, but I just loved the words. Still do. What took you to England? I wanted to be a writer. And, you know, every colonial kid... Uh, needs to go to England, they think. Um, and I wanted to write. Uh, I wanted to be on Fleet Street, which was something I very quickly realised I didn't want to do. But I, I needed... And I, also, I didn't want to stick around in Kenya and do the only thing that was open to me, which was be a secretary and then marry somebody and be a memsab and have coffee mornings and go and play tennis. I knew that I would kill myself if I had to do that. So I had to escape. And I did. You must have, as well as um, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern did, you must have been exposed to sort of some wonderful practitioners and, and theatre at that particular time in London. Well, I was. Yeah, I was, because um, I realised very quickly that I was going to die if I didn't actually have a warm place to live. I had no money when I arrived in England, none whatsoever. Uh, and I had nowhere to go. Um, and so I realized that I needed a warm place to live. And I didn't have any quality. I hadn't been to school, so I had no qualifications whatsoever. Um, I didn't even have what was then called the 11 plus. You know? so, so getting a job was tricky. So I figured that I would be a nanny. And I, would f- I didn't care about the kids or anything, but I wanted to find a warm place to live. And so I, I checked out all these wonderful warm houses with these snotty kids, but I was incredibly lucky in finding actually a wonderful family who I fell in love with instantly. Three small boys and a pug and a, a Labrador. And their mother was a, a brilliant, wonderful actor called Heather Sears, who tragically died far too young but she was a wonderful actor and their dad was was a film art director called tony masters who if you check him out you'll find that he has credits like 2001 the space odyssey and so on Um, everybody talks about it being kubrick's 2001 but what you're actually seeing in that film is tony masters 2001 because he invented everything you see on screen wow so, so I knew, you know, I, I lived with them for two years 
um, the both of them disappeared to she to to go on an Alan Akebourne theatre tour around the country. He to make two thousand and one or something rather in Rome. So I was left with these three small boys and the two dogs, and I was like eighteen, and we just had a ball. We had a most wonderful time, and uh, I I loved them and I loved it, and and, it, and it saved my life. Heather saved my life. Are you still in touch with the boys? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sort of a grandmother now because they've got they've got kids of their own. They've got grown up kids of their own, and uh, they they they're all in the in the film industry too. They're they're editors and and photographers. You know, they they followed their dad's footsteps, and uh, they they've they I didn't do them any harm. They've grown up to be really fantastic young men. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Now tell me, what do Princess Diana and Doris Day have in common? I've written books about both of them. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do I get the lollies? You do, you do. Two disparate women. What what attracted you to both of them? Uh, Well, Doris Day came first. And um, I've I've been a Doris Day fan ever since I saw uh, Calamity Jane, which, of course, no. Every every baby girl who thinks she likes girls loves Calamity Jane. If you cut out the last scene, uh, and and I had a friend. We we were work, both working in London. In in uh, I was at Time Out, and she was doing. She was working at the BFI, the British Film Institute, and we had got into an argument with with some really snot nosed academics about the value of Doris Day. And we said she was really, really under underrepresented, uh, misunderstood, and we thought she was wonderful. So we, the two of us, we got together a 39-film retrospective, which went on at the National Film Theatre, and we wrote a, a very academic, very learned tome about Doris, um, with her blessing. And uh, it was the most successful uh, film season that the NFT had ever put on to that time, at that time. And so we were, uh, it was called, the, and the book and the season was called Move Over Misconceptions, Doris Day Reappraised. And we were able to put Doris right back on top where she deserved to be. So that's how that happened. And then, oh, years later, um, Diana burst, you know, like a, like a comet. She really was a comet, didn't she? She burned out. She burst like a comet onto, onto British, the British public. And um, a, a, a British publisher said to me very sort of snottily, another guy, actually, another straight, straight male said, oh, well, we need something for our yearbook and I suppose you could find 500 words to say about her. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, ooh, that's not nice. But it was 1983, and so she had been in the public eye for two years. And she was a baby, you know, she, and um, the more I looked at it, the more I realised there was an awful lot to say about her. So I actually wrote a book which was called Princess Die, The National Dish, The Making of a Media Superstar. And pretty much every book about Diana ever since has plagiarised that book. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I reread it recently, actually, and it's actually really pretty damn good. Is it still in publication? Can, can people um, access it? No, no. no you, you can find it online, um, and, and I've got two copies. But I, re, I mean, the, I, I, put, I put her in pol- the political and social context and the cultural context of the, of the time. And the royal family. So what I didn't have to say about Diana, I said about the royal family and Britain. And I even included a cabbage field in it because I I went searching in Norfolk where she and Charles went walking when he talked about getting married. And I found this very large cabbage field. So I was able to add, put a a photo in the book, which, which in true tabloid fashion said, in a cabbage field similar to this one, is where Charles and Diana first talked about marriage. So it was that kind of book. Right. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Let's move on to talk about arts journalism for a bit. Um, M- Michael Billington says that the key to any critic is to be honest with your reactions. 
is it sometimes just a bit difficult to be honest with your reactions in print? Uh, there are two, actually, there are two things there, which is if, if you absolutely adore something, it's very hard to sort of rein in the horse of wild enthusiasm. I, I, I once had to edit a, a dear friend actually in London who wrote a review, which I thought was the silliest thing ever, ever committed to paper, which was paper at the time. She wrote, rave, 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 rave. And it went on and on and on and on in paragraphs for about 300 words. And, and that is beyond stupid. It's, well, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing in it to read or to hook you really, is it? You just sort of Well, it's what's... stupid. It's stupid. It's lazy. It's, it's like, I've done a lot of, of, um, of mentoring and teaching. And when somebody says, this is really incredible. I say, yes. And why, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? You know, and, and it's, you can't just say it's incredible. It's amazing. It's, it's lazy. It's stupid. It doesn't tell you anything. It's a cliche. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I don't use cliches when I do. I'm, I'm horrified, but so, so writing something really terrific can be very difficult because um, you still have to make sense of it and sort of hose yourself down uh, and, not, and not get carried away. Uh, it's because it's incredibly, <laughs> there you go, see? It's incredibly important. It is very important. <laughs> really important. Edit, edit, edit. To tell people why something is special and how it's special and how it's affected you. Be honest. Uh, how, how and why it's affected you. Quite often that's about the context. Um, but when it comes to saying, this is really crap, which doesn't happen very often, but, but often there are, there are elements which are not good or elements that you just know don't work. And look, I, I have been doing this a long, long, long time. So I do believe I do know when something isn't working and I also know why it's not working or how it's not working or what might have gone wrong or what could be done to improve it or fix it or indeed just throw it out or whatever so I actually find those reviews challenging but but useful for me I mean I I, I really want to know what it is I'm feeling and how and why and if I love something, I really, really, really want people to go and see it and to, to understand why. And similarly, if it's not that great, then say, look, this isn't that great. A lot of other people thought it was terrific. They all stood up and clapped. So this is what I think and make up your own mind. But sometimes you just have to say, please don't waste your money. Yeah. But happily, that's not very often. You have that responsibility sometimes in putting pen to paper. Um, and also knowing that those, those actors, the, the playwright, the, the director, have often invested weeks, months, years into creating absolutely. what you've gone to see. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's, um, it, oh, it's very, it's, it's, not an, it's not nice. It's not, it doesn't make me happy. I mean, a lot of people, it's an amazing number of people say, oh, you, you, you all, as if we're this amorphous mass, you all love being nasty crap bullshit no i want something to be wonderful i walk into a theater wanting to have a good time yeah you know, that's why i go i go for that you know the transcendent moment the 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 satisfying story the the great spectacle the 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 intimacy the the human contact the shared experience heard that one somewhere before that's why we go to theater it's you don't you don't go in there thinking huh I'm not going to like this or, oh, I don't like this kind of thing. If I don't like a, a kind of thing, I don't go to it. I don't go to ballet, classical ballet, because I can't bear it. So what is the point of sending me? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you, you've been what looking at theatre in Australia for several decades now. I guess you've yeah. been in... 
Yes, yeah. Um, I, I guess you'd be in a, a, a wonderful position, a unique position of being able to see uh, practitioners as they've emerged and then their career has developed, all the same with certain yeah. companies. Yes, true, true. And you also see companies go up and down as well. I mean, and, and fashions and uh, ways of telling stories. I mean, it's very interesting f- to think uh, now about... Um, uh, people like Nakia Louie and, uh, a, a, and and all the other young, youngish, young Indigenous writers. I, I think of Nakia actually because she made me laugh this morning. She did something or other. Um, but when I came, when I first started going to the Theatre Australia, uh, Jack Davis was just was was being produced at Belvoir, and Ernie Dingo was was a gorgeous young man. He's now a gorgeous older man, you know, but he was a total, <laughs> you know, hunk of spunk. Um, so, but Jack Davis was, was it, was really it. Uh, but now there's, and I, I know there are others, but, but he remains in my mind um, as someone special. And, uh, and, and actors who've, who've come and gone and uh, who still remain, I mean, We've still got Elaine Crombie, but Justine Saunders, we don't have. And the people who've come and gone, I mean, Patrick White. I love Patrick White's plays. I adore Patrick White's plays. I was privileged to sit at his feet and be called that tall girl. Um, I love his plays. I just love them. And that's not necessarily very fashionable. Dorothy Hewitt, uh, you know, is another one who's... Who, whose work I was so privileged to see. And also now, when you think about it, um, the, the, the Sydney Theatre Company put a, a, a thing online the other day saying we're, we're getting together people's um, memories of the wharf. Tell us your memories. And they had a whole range of photos of people uh, who've appeared there in the last, I don't know, two or three decades or but my first thought was um ruth cracknell in a cheery soul which for me remains one of the greatest performances i've ever seen and i think the greatest performance of her life and that was at the wharf you know and i can see her sitting in that pile of dirt still that, not cheery you know, soul uh you're thinking of no not, um, cheery, soul. No, not cheery soul it was Quite never in cheery soul it was, it was. No, Ruth was in Happy Days. Happy Days, Happy Days. Yes. What a twit. Yeah, sitting, sitting in her pile with her, with her little hat on her head. You know, that's things like that. I've been, I've been really, really lucky, actually. And really? going to the Adelaide Festival every year and so on. It's, I, we are very incredibly fortunate. And I, I find it interesting sometimes watching some of the National Theatre Live and some of the visitors here thinking, Really? Is that it? You know, some of it's magic, but a lot of it isn't. And we forget that we see the very best. And, and sometimes those touring companies come and they're, they're just not good at all. I mean, in Adelaide, um, at the festival this year, the, the Juliet Stevenson came with a production of The Doctor. And uh, on the opening night, you couldn't hear a word apart from her. Because what we didn't realise was they'd sent out a scratch company and they, they didn't send a director. It hadn't been properly rehearsed. And it was very obvious that the actors actually didn't want to be on that stage. They were petrified. They were all facing the back wall. Wow. Um, and apparently the uh, artistic director of the festival had to go and, and um, do something about it because it improved markedly after that. But I did think this, this is an outrage. You know, here we are being treated to something amazing from England or wherever. And actually, our performers, our plays, our directors, they're as good and often a hell of a lot better, yeah. which is great, which is great. Are there any titles that you tire of reviewing? Like we think, oh, not another Romeo and Juliet. I couldn't sit through it again. Um, that's just pulling a title from the air, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, well, if I never have to go to an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical again, 
but it'll be too small. Um, Is it easy to find, with those Shakespeare's, I mean, I think I've seen um, A Midsummer Night's Dream about 15 times. And I can I, see it 16 times more, actually. Yeah. It's one of so my favourites. So the challenge is finding something new to say, I guess, about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I will never tire, for instance, of wall, oh, wall. You know, going through the wall. Mind you, that, of course, is um, is uh, Popular Mechanicals, which was the funniest play ever written in, in, my, in my book. Tony Taylor, no, Jeffrey Rush and Keith Robinson. Yeah, yeah and Gillian Hyde and Kerry Walker. That they original were, cast, were yeah, brilliant. And that, that, to me, that's the benchmark. That is the Everest of comedy. Never mind James Corden, who I find really unfunny. Uh, isn't no, that isn't that bizarre? I find him very unfunny as well, and I know he grates a lot of people. Ugh, I can't bear him. I just no, never mind. But there's a visitor. <laughs> I'm glad left. <laughs> In the same instance, uh, are there some plays that you never tire of that you can see again and again? Well, I guess yes. Um, Shakespeare, for one, actually, of course. I mean, some of them more than others. Uh, I, I do love A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. I really do. I really do. And um, when it comes to... Uh, well, as, what did I see recently? Um, you don't... Well, you, the trouble is you don't often get a chance to see a play again. They're not put on again, particularly Australian plays. New, new plays, you know, yeah. They, they, yeah, they get, they get put on, then they disappear. Um, so I can't even think of one right now, but, but um, I'll tell you what I would like to see again, and that's The Drover's Wife, you know, uh, Leah Purcell's play. I, that, would be, that would be wonderful. And, and, and I saw um, a Cloud Street a couple of times, and, uh, oh, God, you know, I, I suppose... No, nope, my, my, my mind goes completely blank when you ask me questions like that. But yeah. there, are, there are plays that I would love to see again. But, but, uh, it's like choosing your favourite <laughs> child. Well, it is really. But I, I, would, re- <laughs> I, I would like to see, um, well, we were going to see Deborah Oswald as herself this year. I, I wish she would do more writing for theatre. Um, I'd like Leah Purcell to leave The Drover's Wife alone now and do something new. I think, you know, I, I mean, there again, I saw her first in Box the Pony. And wow, that that girl has become such an incredible force uh, in, in in entertainment in the arts in this country. Um, it's it's uh, it's just it's just magic, I think. I'd love to see more large cast plays. I know that's not financially viable for a lot of the companies, but there's nothing more exciting than seeing a big company on stage. Is it, well, what about Harp in the South? Yeah, oh yeah, wasn't that magnificent? Yeah. Yeah. It was glorious. It was just glorious, and the and the storytelling. I mean, I, I love I love the, the richness of the storytelling. Oh, I tell you what, I would love to see. Speaking of that, it would be Mary Stewart. I thought Miss um, Thompson and Miss Brazier were just just magnificent, and in roles that uh, the like of which I'd not seen them in before. But uh, the li- the likelihood of that being brought back, I, I think, is not it's not great, which is a great pity. Uh, but, but, but sorry, but I just when you say the, the big things, my other requirement, I must say, is um, I, I want redemption. I'm not into nihilism at all. It's not about Pollyanna. I don't, I'm not Pollyanna. I don't want a happy ending, but I do want something that's not nihilistic. You know, we have real life for that. Yeah. Well, theatre uh, can um, very much have that responsibility and power to indicate shifts in culture. I'm thinking of it, theatre's pointing the way in which society needs to move. I mean, we're looking at, you know, the inclusion of gender equality and racial diversity in casting now and telling those stories. Yeah, yes. Well, that, I think when, it, uh, when it's done for uh, pro- pro- properly, what do I mean by that? Um, when it's not done to tick boxes, yes, yes, I, th- I think I think Kate Mulvaney's Richard the Third was absolutely. I, I'll never see that play in the same way again. It was to me, it was a definitive experience. 
um, because of the way it, it was done. I'm really sorry that she didn't get to do the rest of what was supposed to be a series of plays with, with Belle Shakespeare. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, it got canned for some reason, which is a great pity because, I, I, you know, her, t her talent, her, her uh, integrity as a, as a theatre talent, I think is extraordinary. Um, and I would also like to see, well, uh, you can't go past the stables for me, for what they do. But also um, Andrew Henry and, and, uh, and Vanessa Wright at, at the Old Fitz, I think we, we are beyond fortunate to, to have them running the old fits uh, it's like they they are the, the vitamin b12 shot that this town needed to to, to grow it's to grow theater i think they're just magnificent what they've been doing in such a in, tiny space in such a tiny space and with no money and no assistance and just sheer talents and determination i think they are utterly utterly amazing dana break down for me how you approach writing a, a review uh you go along to uh to a show you might have a a, a quick drink in the foyer beforehand uh, not necessarily no it, i i want to know how long it's going to be right yeah you know, what the running time is because i do not want to be distracted by needing a pee 20 minutes before the end um i also i don't I really don't want to have even the tiniest of faculties um, impaired. And I've worked too much with drunks um, throughout my life to, to have any time for somebody to turn up half cut to do their job. So, so probably not, probably not. Uh, and then I go into theatre with as clear a mind and with as few expectations as possible. I know some people read the plays beforehand. Yeah. Which I have never understood. But then I, I treat it, I've always gone in as a punter, as a, as a member of the public. And I don't know anybody who is a sane member of the public who reads a play before they go and see it. Do you read um, up on um, the playwright or the context or anything like that before you go in? No, no, no. I, I want to go in. I mean, obviously, when it's Shakespeare or... or um, yes, you've already got that knowledge. You, 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 you do have knowledge. But I want to go into that production as with as clear a mind as possible. I don't want to have expectations. I can't bear it when people say things like, oh, it's not as good as the one in 1979 or whatever. I think, how do you know? I do not believe that you can, you can remember that. You might remember impressions and moments, but you can't compare. And I, I don't think there's any point in, in, in those sorts of comparisons. This is what this is now. And you take it for what it is now. Uh, it's historical context, it's social context, it's cultural context, but not what the production was you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, do you, do you unless, make notes during the performance in any way? Uh, uh, when I first started out, I used to write a novel. I would scribble away like a maniac. You know. In the dark? Then, in the dark, yes. Although there was an infamous critic who had a pen a pen light oh. and to me it was almost like <laughs> i am a critic yes, right, i'm right, working right. i'm watching oh, you my oh my god yes dreadful anyway um so but then i what i found was that invariably i would either not be able to read the notes or i'd forget them because i would i would actually come to the end of the performance if you write notes all the time you're not paying attention you're actually writing notes yeah yeah so, so I would, didn't find them useful and I would write something and I'd come to it and I'd think, what did that mean? Why did I say that? What, why was that important? So I no longer write notes. Um, I might scribble on my hand if, if, um, if there's a word or a thought, just something that I just go, oh, I do really want to remember that. But invariably, then when I when I get out, I have I have so many ideas buzzing around in my head, and so many thoughts and so many feelings 
that I usually forget to consult my hand anyway. So do I write notes? No, I don't. They only do, you... do it at the festival when, when I've seen two or three shows in a day, right. when they start to sort of get jumbled. But no, not really, no. Do you hang around after the performance? I mean, if it's opening night uh, or anything like that, or do you need to get home straight away and just get your, get your ideas down? Well, sometimes, sometimes I think you really owe me a drink. I've had such a dreadful time or I've sat in this hard <laughs> for so long. You really owe me a drink. I deserve this. Um, or if something is really risible or w- whatever, if I hate it, if I hated it, then I think I am going home. I'm out of here. I am, I'm not going to drink their drink and uh, I, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, but usually... I mean, the thing is, if you've been hanging around in the theatres in Sydney for the past 30-odd years, which I have, you pretty much know everybody and you like... I mean, I like the people. I admire most of them. There are very few people who work in theatre in Sydney, in Australia, who I don't admire and like to to greater or lesser degree. And I was, you know, very few people and this happens to writers very few people actually say that was fantastic thank you so much I really enjoyed that if you're a writer they usually say well that was a bit of shit wasn't it and you had a wrong word there you know when I worked on the Herald I used to get that a lot you know you had a wrong word in that so I write back this was the days of writing back and I'd say well thank you so much for that what did you think of the other 649 words (laughs) did you find any of them useful Um, so so people usually get criticised or nothing and it's like you've thrown your heart and soul down a big hole and you're waiting for it to hit the bottom and go splash so if I've if if usually I've got something good to say I will go up to somebody this was pre-covid of course and say that was fantastic and give them a a big hug if I know them well or thank just thank them just say thank you thank you for for entertain thank you for looking after me thank you for looking after my my soul but feeding me thank you thank you thank you it's it's great i really admire what you do on the other hand it sucks but then i never say that my my (laughs) absence means it sucks in my view hold it inside what's your time frame how long does it take you to write a review and get it to publication well, I try to get it, if I see something, if I was going tonight, I'd want it to be published tomorrow. Um, sometimes, very, I mean, whatever happens, sometimes I've not managed that for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and um, that's not my, my favourite thing. I mean, I did start in London where the overnight review was the norm. So you had to leave the theatre, um, and there are no drinks in theatres in London afterwards. Um, you had to leave the theatre, and then often you, you get on the phone, a public phone, <laughs> and, and phone it in, you know, within half an hour or an hour. So I've learnt, I, I do write very fast. That is something, that's, a, that's a, um, an ability I have. I don't think it's a talent, I, it's an ability I have. And I do write fast and I write very clean as well. So I think it's all up there and then it just falls out. Do you ever cheat a bit and and seek the reactions of your colleagues before you write your own response? Absolutely not. No, (laughs) no, absolutely not. The only time I do that is when you come out of something and you go, oh, my God, that's two and a half Three hours of my life, I'll never get back. But you're only to only to certain people who, you know, somebody that you know. I mean, that when you're coming out at an interval, for instance, you can make eye contact with somebody, guys, and you know that you're you're in the same same place of thinking. Oh my God, I wish I was at home, or oh my God, I wish that. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, we didn't have to come back in for the second half. <laughs> this is hell. Um, but 
I don't seek out opinions at all, no. Yes, the eyes, eye-rolling is a whole other language, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. Or just that, you know, the rabbit in the headlights, when you just stare at somebody across you know, the tops of people's heads and just go, oh, my God. Um, does the tone... Again, it doesn't happen very often. Does the tone in which you review a production shift depending on whether it's a, an independent production or a, a multi-million dollar commercial musical? Uh, oh, I've just touched my face. Um, yes, yes, because I think a multi-million dollar musical whose publicity budget would keep the old fits going for about three years uh, should be held to, to far higher account and, and is usually not up to it. Um, but I don't think I don't think companies should be uh, pandered to, like like they. I, I used to get into trouble when I was writing in London for being uh, critical and being tough on feminist theatre, which was then, you know, in its in its infancy. And I thought Carol there, Churchill there are, and well, no, Carol Churchill was always a genius, actually. No, but there are some people. Oops, sorry, who's um whose work happily has, has been lost to time. But, but uh, you can't... I don't think it does anybody any good to be kind for the sake of it. And just... You can... You don't... You don't have... You shouldn't be savage or, or nasty. I mean, no, you should never be nasty or savage, except to some people. Um, but you should be critical, you sh uh, uh, um, constructively critical, because if someone says, uh, as, was you, as you were supposed to do in the times of early feminist theatre, oh, it was wonderful, it was wonderful. No, it wasn't. It was boring. It was didactic. But no, 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 no. And if you're going to get any better, and if you're going to charge people money for the tickets, you actually have to get better and entertain people. Uh, it's not good enough to say this is a feminist play if it's a crap play. And I think the same, the same for Indigenous work as well. You often get a sort of inverted racism with people being very careful not to be critical uh, when, when actually it would be better for the playwright and the actors sometimes to actually say, you know, this doesn't quite work. However, it's got this going for it and this going for it, but you could try doing this as well. Yeah. Keep the bastards I, honest. There's no point otherwise. Yeah. What's the point? You know, if it's like it's like kids going to school and 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 getting a gold star for turning up or not picking their nose or something. Mm. You know, that doesn't do anybody any good. Now, we all get it wrong at some stage. Do you make mistakes yeah. as a critic? Do you have realisations later that think, oh, I might have actually got that wrong? Yeah. Yeah? I do. Yes, I do. Um, when you've had greater I mean, time to reflect, I guess. I think it's... it's um, those are the times, mainly, when... I've actually struggled to say something and I realized that it was because uh, I didn't understand it or, or I realized in retrospect, I didn't understand it or I was just in the wrong, it just rubbed me up the wrong way for some reason. And I realized that it was actually more about me than, than anything else. I think a couple of times, no, I can't think of an instance right now. I've actually gone back and said, I made a mistake. Uh, I will. I mean, if I do, if I think, if I, if I, if I realize I've been wrong, I will, I will happily say so. Um, well, not happily, but I will. I will. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm unhappy that it was wrong, but, but that's, that's not the same as having a different opinion to everybody else. Yeah. Um, no, that's not the same at all. But yeah, if I make a mistake, I, I will definitely say so, and I'll definitely correct it. Yeah. Um, 
isn't technology wonderful that we're able to record this episode at a distance? Yes. Um, you didn't drop your laptop, which is good. No, no. And uh, and Charlie hasn't come in to chew the the cable. Oh, um, very so good, very good. Is the uh, so, the poop up? Are you riding? How are you amusing yourself during um, isolation? Look, I I feel very guilty actually about the number of friends and people I know, acquaintances, whatever, who are having a really hard time because I am not. Uh, I don't miss going to work because work for me is a laptop wherever I happen to be. And I am never happier than when I've got my laptop and whatever I'm doing or want to do and I'm left alone to do it. So it's... It's really good fun. I mean, I've had a couple of cocktail parties, online cocktail, Zoom cocktail parties with friends, and that's all very nice. But if I didn't do it, it wouldn't bother me. Oh, God, are they going to read this, see this? They probably are. Oh, crikey. I do really love you all, but I really don't mind if I don't see you. That's the truth <laughs> of it. Because I really, I, I live in my head. That's where I'm alive. That's where I'm happy, in my head. And in that respect, I'm very selfish. I'm very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. And uh, I've, I've just had a play produced online by the glorious James Miller and a whole bunch of people uh, because I, I wrote it last year when I, I had a residency at Bundanon. It was the first draft. And he approached me a couple of weeks back and said, we're doing some online uh, going to do round, uh, you know, readings, a table read, um, and would you like to be in it? I said, well, you know, would I like to be in it? So I sent him the play. He he got a whole bunch of actors together. I mean, that was the extraordinary thing. You know, getting a workshop together is going to be different from now on because the actors are in Melbourne and Sydney and all over the place, and we were all on the screen together, and it was like sitting around a table with them. Like when, when we got to a spot where somebody didn't understand something and they stopped and said, I'm not sure about this. What, what does this mean? And I was able to say, well, it means this or actually you're right. That doesn't work. I'll change it. Uh, and so we had um, two rehearsals, full rehearsals. And then on, on Easter Monday at uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, there was a, a performance and one of one of the actors is, um, is um, Meredith O'Reilly, and she turned up. Um, she had, turned up. She was in her in her sitting room, wherever she was, and she had costumes for her roles. She had a hat, and she had various other things. <laughs> and everybody, they were fabulous actors, and I can't think of their names now because they're Melbourne actors, and I don't know them. Isn't that isn't that just the truth? Um, and uh, and a, a, a lovely young kid. She's just fifteen, called uh, Paris, who was in Matilda with James and she played, there's a, there's a boy uh, is one of the main characters in this play. And she played the boy. She was terrific. And, and I sat and watched them and listened and I was able to do five drafts, five new drafts between when we started and when we finished. Wow. And since then I've, people have heard about it. They were interested in it. And I've now got an agent and we are about to start pushing it out to uh, to theatre companies. So, what am I doing? I'm having a ball. I'm just. I'm so happy. I can't tell you. Well, if and anything's a, new, a, sorry, you have a new. I have a new poodle to to not replace. But in my my beloved Harry died a few months, a couple of months ago. So having a four month old in the house, as anybody with children will know, is is full time. Oh, and new, new <laughs> relations, new relations. Um, well, if, if anything is to come out of this uh, horrible situation we're all in at the moment with the, the coronavirus, I think it's going to engage a lot of rethinking about how we do things, um, certainly in, uh, in our sector, um, which I think, you know, yeah. we, we might be delighted with what we, we do uncover, as you've just uh, well, described. I, yeah, I do, I do think that people wanting, uh, well, actors trying to get together to... to uh, workshop a play, uh, do a reading, whatever. It's never going to be that hard again. You you don't have to get people into the same room. You can just do it. You just pick a time and you just do it. 
But the other thing that I'm really optimistic about is when we come out the other end of this, I think people are going to be desperate to actually go to things and see things and they want, I think they're going to want to be together in watching, watching things and seeing things and laughing together and crying together. And if, if everybody can just hang on by the skin of their very strong teeth, uh, I, th I think there are going to be some amazing things, good things, exciting things, and, and a whole new appreciation for what art and artists do in this country. That's my, that's my belief, and I, I, I hope to God I'm right. I love that chat with Diana, much to contemplate when assessing the arts and the pressure of time and economy of words to express your verdict. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday and occasionally there's a bonus episode dropped in for good measure. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends. Your enthusiasm is much appreciated, as are the many emails and messages I receive communicating your enjoyment of the episodes. You couldn't go one step further though, could you? Take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a short review. You can do this through the podcast iTunes app where you access this episode. It helps to get the series promoted and received. Until next time, I'm Peter Eyes, and you've been listening to another episode of Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>